Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Saturday, March the 2nd, 2024. American democracy remains, in some people's minds at least, in crisis. Mitch McConnell quit this week, according to the Wall Street Journal. He couldn't, quote unquote, fend off Trump, Donald Trump's populist takeover, I guess, of the party and perhaps of the country. Uh, one wonders whether Trump's populism and American democracy are antithetical. A couple of days ago, we had Ira Shapiro on, who's an expert on Mitch McConnell. He's the author of Betrayal, um, Mitch McConnell's Assault on American Democracy, and he believes that uh, McConnell essentially abandoned America and its democratic system in his behavior over the last few years. Lots of different takes on the crisis of American democracy from a number of different perspectives, done all sorts of shows. And today we're talking about, um, in what my view at least, is a radical alternative to American democracy or the current form of American democracy, uh, Parliamentary America, or although this subtitle of this new book by Maxwell L. Stern suggests that it is the least radical means of radically repairing our broken democracy. Maxwell Stearns is a law scholar, constitutional scholar, uh, and he's talking to us from Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, Max, welcome, and congratulations on the new book. Um, how is American democracy broken? What do you mean by that? So first, thank you for having me on your show, Andrew. It's, it's, it's nice to, to join you. What I mean is that we are facing the third constitutional crisis as a nation. Uh, the first was the crisis that ended the Articles of Confederation. The second was in the lead up and aftermath of the Civil War. And what we are now facing is a comparably dire threat of autocracy or collapse. And unless we confront this in the most serious way, recognizing the root causes of the problem, and figuring out what is required to extricate ourselves from it, we risk not emerging from it a thriving democracy. And so many people are talking about the fact that we are in a crisis um, in which we have uh, a system whereby we have two parties that are growing increasingly far apart. This is reflected deeply in our society and culture. And part of the difficulty is that we're so entrenched in our opposing camps that each side regards the other as lacking basic intelligence or as evil. We no longer believe that we can credit the other side with evaluating the same information as we have evaluated and simply having come out in good faith in a different place. And this has wrought havoc with our government and with our, and with our society. Is the problem, uh, Max, existing on both sides of the political aisle. You suggested that both parties are incapable of talking to the other, but you've also talked about um, the way in which one party perhaps wants to replace American democracy with something else. Is the problem just with the Republicans or is it systemic? Well, the two-party system is certainly problematic on both sides, and there are some parallel 
pathologies going on. I do not mean to suggest that there is moral equivalency in terms of the willingness to subvert democratic norms on both sides. I do not believe that to be the case. Obviously, what's happening in the Republican Party is quite different in that regard than what's happening in the Democratic Party. But the pathology of the two-party system pervades both parties in ways that render them very significantly in threat. And we're actually seeing that um, also on the Democratic side. But you are correct that the uh, willingness of uh, the present leader of the GOP to subvert democratic norms and to really express a desire to supersede our democracy with autocratic governance um, does cer certainly is different in kind from what we're seeing on, on the other side. But we make a mistake to imagine that a single electoral outcome is going to save us from democracy. We, we faced this threat in 2016, 2020, and now we are almost certain to face it again with even fewer checks uh, against him should Donald Trump succeed to the presidency. You talked about the current crisis as America's third constitutional crisis, but there have been many, haven't there, Max, over the, 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 the almost 250 years now of the American Republic, the crisis after the First World War, a kind of coup from above in some ways, the crisis of the 1960s. Why is the turbulence of the 2020s any more serious than the turbulence in the post- First World War years or in the 1960s? Well, I think the reason for that is that this particular crisis, like the other two that I described, arise from a fundamental problem, kind of a disjuncture, if you will, between the premises on which the then existing constitutional system um, rested and the profound needs of governance, a, a fundamental incapacity to actually operate effectively as a government without some foundational uh, change to the way we operate as a democracy. You're right, we've had many crises. I don't mean to suggest that we haven't had other crises throughout our history. We've had many of them, including the ones you mentioned, but not limited to the ones that you mentioned. But in terms of a constitutional crisis, I'm, I'm, I'm being more specific. I'm talking about a crisis in which we cannot continue to function as a democracy without revisiting some foundational questions about the premises of the system under which we are operating. And that was true in the Articles period where we essentially entirely replaced the then existing constitution, in the Reconstruction period where we amended the constitution, recognizing that the supposition that we could, that we could rely on states to be the protectors of individual rights and liberties in the aftermath of the Civil War with respect to the most vulnerable population, uh, newly freed former enslaved persons. Um, in both of those instances, there was just a profound difficulty in continuing to function unless we revisited the way our constitution was structured. And today we are experiencing that problem in a new manifestation that requires an equally serious intervention into our constitutional system. It's one of the problems, and we've had a number of conversations, Max, on this uh, with different kinds of constitutional scholars of one kind or another, that the America of 1776 or of the late 18th century is a foreign country to the America of the 2020s. So whatever was conceived constitutionally in the late 18th century 
is utterly irrelevant at the beginning of the 21st century. Is this truth to that? Well I, well, I certainly don't disagree that the framers of the Constitution or people living contemporaneously in that period would find unrecognizable the world in which we live. But I, but I, but I think that that fails at some level to understand or appreciate the, um, the problem that we face. Because in fact, if we go back, what we recognize is that the way the framers conceived the Constitution to work never worked in the manner that they envisioned. And so I think we need to really recognize the fact that although many people, we've all sort of, those of us who have grown up in the United States have been sold essentially since our young childhood an intuition about American exceptionalism, how we have a long enduring constitution, long enduring, longer than any other constitution in, in the world, which, which is true. Uh, but what that fails to capture is that we may have survived and even thrived in spite of rather than because of our constitutional design. Because in fact, the framers understood the constitution to set up a series of never ending rivalries among the branches of government. They, I describe it in the book as a rock, paper, scissors constitution that for every branch of government, there's another that could defeat it or it or that it could defeat. And so we're gonna have this sort of endless game of rivalries among the branches, and then we're gonna overlay that with federalism. So we're gonna have rivalries at a geographic level between the federal and state governments, but it never worked that way. If you go back as early as George Washington's farewell address, you recognize that he saw that partisanship already was overtaken the game that the framers of the constitutions thought that they had created. Um, and in fact, because they set up a system that ultimately became a majoritarian system, we end up with, a, with an alternative set of rivalries between two major parties that overtakes this notion of separation of powers and checks and balances and federalism, which the framers thought was going to break and control what they called the violence of factions. You could think of that as precursors to political parties. Instead, they embedded a system that was destined to produce ultimately the two-party system, which we endured for more than a couple hundred years before we hit upon the information age. And frankly, that wrought havoc with the two-party system in, in significant and profound ways that require us to go back and revisit some basic premises if we're going to emerge from this, a truly thriving democracy, which is obviously my hope and the reason that I wrote this book. It's an interesting argument, Max, but isn't or hasn't the two-party system in America in particular been very soft? So, for example, FDR was a political genius in manipulating the two wings of his own Democratic Party, the Southern and the Northern wings maybe they had more than two wings different ways of thinking about america race democracy um economics so the idea of america as a, a hard two-party system has never really existed and the parties are not just broad but also rather plastic so when it comes to race for example african americans always supported the republicans uh, sorry the democrat the, the the republicans up until the 1960s, and then everything switched. So, so what's wrong with the two-party system, given the flexibility, the, the plasticity of these parties? 
I think the plasticity has changed. In other words, you're absolutely correct that we have had from very early in our history a capacity of very, very um, clever, sometimes brilliant political entrepreneurs bridging gaps that otherwise might naturally exist across our parties, Southern versus Northern. We can go through the history of the um, of, 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 of the Whigs and the Democrats and the, the emergence of, of, of the Republicans and so forth. We can go through that history. Uh, but what, what has happened in the information age, and you can look at the Pew Research data and it corroborates this, is that although as you know, if we go, if we look in the 1950s, for example, there was such considerable overlap between the parties that the American Political Science Association published a study, which was a critique of our two-party system, claiming that the major problem with our two-party system was that they were insufficiently distinct. They failed to give meaningful choice to voters. And in fact, in 1952, both the Democratic and Republican parties pursued the same person to be the head of their slate, which is unimaginable today, but they both wanted Dwight D. Eisenhower. And five years later, um, the economist Anthony Downs wrote a book called An Economic Theory of Democracy, which popularized an intuition that we all have about our democracy, which is we think of liberal to the left, conservative to the right, we think of a line, and we think of the candidates sort of converging on the center. And that may have been descriptive at the time that he wrote it, but the problem is, and the Pew Research data and other uh, data make this plain, that really since the beginning of the information age, the early 1990s, the centers of these two parties, or the modes, if you will, have grown increasingly far apart. And there's a reason, there's a reason why this happened. It's not a coincidence that it happened in the information age. And it happened in the information age as, as a consequence. And you use this term information yeah. age to describe the internet, because of course there was information be before 1990. Oh, absolutely. No, I'm, I'm, you're absolutely right. But I'm talking about what many, many social scientists refer to the information age, the idea of the emergence of the Internet and really far greater technical capacity to undertake tasks that were undertaken before but without that scientific level of precision. So if you if you look, for example, at David Daly's um, book with the unceremonious title Rat Eft, basically why your why your vote doesn't count. He talks about the fact that, yeah, we've had partisan gerrymandering since the beginning. I mean, it actually was named after Eldridge Gary, hard G, a governor of Massachusetts at the really earliest period of our constitutional history. But in the immediate aftermath of Barack Obama's first term, Republican operatives figured out that for pennies on the dollar, they could throw money at state general assembly elections, flip enough purple and uh, blue states red. And then because the state general assemblies are drawing the district lines for house delegations, they could in turn flip enough um, blue districts red to seize control of the House of Representatives. And they thought that they had a lock on that for about 20 years. They were a little excessively ambitious in those numbers. But the truth of the matter is the aftermath of red mapping and blue mapping has made it so that as a general matter, in the general elections, House districts are not competitive. They are competitive in the primaries, of course, because if you don't adequately cater to the base of your party, you'll be primaried by an alternative 
member of your party who will, and that is contributing to the modes of these parties being pushed further apart. The other dynamic in this age, of course, is the manner by which we receive news and news-like information. And the business models, of course, of Facebook and X, or Meta, I should say, and X as opposed to Twitter, is one that sort of is motivated to keep you actively engaged and glued to your screen uh, because that's what advertisers want. And the way to do that isn't to give you thoughtful up the middle content in your news feeds. It's to give you affirming content or precisely oppositional content, meaning content that either makes you feel like you're part of a, a worthwhile tribe or content that allows you and your friends to denigrate the other side, either as lacking basic intelligence or evil. And the consequence of these two dynamics is to create kind of a loop among and there's always uh, a, media. you know I've heard this argument yeah. so many times. In fact, I've even made it myself. But there's always hysteria after each new media. People talked about the end of democracy after the invention of certainly of print, of radio, of mass publications, and of television. What, why is this any different? Well, the problem, of course, is the intersection with our two-party system. The real problem here is that from the beginning our constitutional system largely has resulted in geographically defined districts. There's a bit of a history there. We didn't always have uh, single member house districts, but we have roughly since 1842. And of course the senates are statewide. We didn't always have popular elections within the state, but we have of course, since the, you know, the 16th amendment. And then, um, but, and, and then of course the presidency although it's processed through the electoral college, it's still a single macro district. And the problem with that is that each side realizes that the winning strategy is to unite your side and fracture the opposition. And that creates the consequence of two camps, two parties. And the problem is that both parties recognize that they can't afford to give up any part of their natural constituency because the consequence of doing so is to throw support to the other side. The thing people need to realize, two part, a two-party system doesn't mean we don't have third parties. Obviously, we have third parties. England is primarily a two-party system. It has third parties. A two-party system means that third parties play a confounding role meaning that when you support someone to the left of the Democrat, to the right of the Republican, you end up ultimately supporting the candidate, the major party candidate you least favor, or alternatively, you risk drawing in both votes from both major candidates, rendering the outcome a roll of the dice. And when you, when you add in this dynamic feature of hyperpartisan gerrymandering, which is pushing the two parties further apart, social media exacerbating, worsening, worsening those divides. That synergistic effect results in a fundamental incapacity of meaningful governance in the sense that it makes it no longer viable for moderates in the Democratic Party, moderates in the Republican Party to come together and solve real problems. Like look what Kevin, Kevin McCarthy steps down, right? And we all knew there were moderate Democrats, moderate, Demo moderate Republicans who probably could have gotten together to come up with a, with, a, with a replacement for the second person in the line of succession to the presidency right after the vice president. But the goal 
politically is to divide and fracture the opposition and to keep your side intact. And we play this game over and over again to the point where when it comes to the budget and appropriations, we hit against that, 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 that deadline wall and we have a crisis every single time. Um, we have our, an inability to engage in sort of the ordinary processes. If you, if you look at Ziblatt and Levitsky, two hard- Yeah, they, they were both on uh, the show. I, I, I know they were. So the, the central point they make in how democracies die is that although people have an intuition that democracies die in a spectacular military fashion, and some do, most of them die through the gradual erosion of longstanding democratic norms that both sides respect. And basically, this has been completely eviscerated. Yeah, and, those, and those guys, yeah, I, I have to admit, I'm not convinced, but those guys go back to constitutional reform, going back to breaking what they see as the kind of dictatorship of an original document. I just want to come back, Max, to one point you made, yeah. which is, I haven't heard this one before, in all these dark visions of obituaries of American democracy. You're saying that Madisonian democracy never existed, that the division of powers never worked? I'm saying it didn't work the way the framers thought for the most part. I mean, we endured it for a very long time. But the framers, if you read the Federalist 10, the idea was they really thought that they came up with a substitute dynamic for the problem of partisanship. They really believed that they had created a dynamic, never-ending set of rivalries among the branches of government and between the federal government and the states that would prevent what they called the violence of factions. But it never really worked that way. We ended up with a two-party system really from the jump. I don't mean to suggest that we never had functional governance. There's a long history and we could spend hours going through the fact that the federal government was uh, a much more modest entity for a lot of our history, the demands on the federal government were, 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 were much uh, smaller until we got to the industrialization period. But we, you know, we, we could talk about a lot of these, a lot of the accommodations, um, the fact that the, that, that, you know, Van Buren's Democratic Party was precisely designed not to make strong commitments, for example, on questions of slavery. We could go through all that history. What I'm suggesting, though, is that especially in the modern era and really culminating in the information age, it is in fact the case that the rivalries that the framers envisioned are a fiction. And everybody who teaches constitutional law, which I've been teaching since 1992, knows they're going to set up a story for their students about the rivalries that are going to ex exist among the branches of government between the federal government and the states. And that is a premise of but, our but constitutional system, and it just doesn't play that. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to admit, you, you know more about constitutional law than I do, but the rivalry, say, between FDR and the Supreme Court or between the imperial presidencies and uh, Congress over the years, I mean, these are real, Max. You can't just deny them. Well, no, there's no doubt that there are rivalries, except go back to the very ones that you imagined. <laughs> it's not very difficult for me to recast every one of those rivalries as partisan rivalries, not institutional rivalries. The court packing plan wasn't because 
FDR didn't like the Supreme Court or the Supreme Court writ large didn't like FDR. It was that there was a five to four conservative majority that was thwarting New Deal regulatory policies. And the court packing plan was a plan to make it a 15 to uh, I'm, I'm sorry, to make it a 15 member court so that you'd have a majority that would actually favor his regulatory. But isn't that, wasn't that wasn't that the whole point of the, the, you know, I want to get to your fix, Parliamentary America in a second. Yeah. But wasn't that the whole point of, 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 of Madisonian democracy is that one party or one faction might control one wing of government and the other the other? So that, that Madison would have been perfectly comfortable with that. Oh, I think that's mistaken. I think that Madison believed that it would be the institutional jealousies themselves that would break and control the violence of faction, at least if we take his writings seriously. You know, the Federalist. Uh, yeah, but that's a very, uh, anyway, so, you know, it's, it's a very yeah. literal interpretation. Anyway, I, I. Oh, I, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't think I'm being literal at all. I, I, I don't. I'm, I'm simply reading the contemporaneous defenses of the constitutional but, but the, system. The constitution was said, Madison famously said, if men were angels, uh, we wouldn't need government. The alternative was the anti-federalist system. Um, perhaps they were re reacting against monarchy. The presidency in itself is a, is a kind of constitutional form of monarchy, which seems in many ways to at least worked over the last 250 years. Are there, is there nothing to be said for the, the Madisonian system that emerged after the revolution? I'm not saying, let me be clear. <laughs> I'm not saying that our constitutional system did not work for a couple hundred years. I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying we were able to endure the system for a couple of hundred years. But that when it hit upon the endured, you mean it, it was uh, it was a it was a bad system. But we endured it. You Americans endured it. Well, I mean, I do think the winner take all system. I do think the winner take all system is certainly not the best way to do democracy. And and in fact, although we've exported democracy around the globe, we've never successfully exported our system of democracy. The democracies we've exported around the globe have been characterized by parliamentary selection and yeah. um, and proportional representation. Yeah, we want to get to, although that, that might actually reflect America rather well, that, that they haven't been in the business of exporting lock, stock and barrel their own democracies. We are talking fascinating conversation with uh, Maxwell Stern, the author of a new book, Interesting new book, radical in its own way, Parliamentary America. I want to thank our friends at Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, for bringing us such high-quality guests. Going to run a short feature on Liberties, and then we'll be back with Max to talk specifically about Parliamentary America, which he sees as the system uh, that can uh, fix American democracy. So don't go away, anyone. We'll be back in a second. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We're speaking with Maxwell Stern, the author, Stern's the author of Parliamentary America, interesting 
new take on fixing what he at least believes to be the broken system of American democracy. Subtitle of the book is The Least Radical Means of Radically Repairing Our Broken Democracy. Uh, the term parliamentary democracy, Max, sounds very radical. Why is it the least radical? And why wouldn't you want to? I mean, if if it's been if if the system is broken, what's wrong with a radical fix? So, well, those those are those are two separate questions. So, so what I'm trying to do in this book is to essentially say that we have to tackle our two-party presidentialism if we are going to emerge a functional democracy and actually thrive. And what we need is to have a multi-party system. The problem that I previously described, I call the third party dilemma, the idea that today people who are frustrated with the choices that presently appear before them, for example, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, last poll I saw suggested 63 percent of uh, of Americans wish neither of them were running. The problem is that if they vote for a third party candidate, that, that candidate will either be a spoiler, meaning that they will end up supporting the major party candidate they least favor, or what I call a randomizer, will risk drawing in votes from both major party candidates, rendering the outcome a roll of the dice. What we need to do is have more parties, but we need to recognize that multi-party systems in and of themselves are not the solution. It is a necessary feature, but it's an insufficient feature. Because what political scientists have demonstrated is the twin threats to democracy are having too few parties, majoritarian systems, the US, the UK, think Brexit, or too many parties. You can think you of countries think like- I mean, why, why is Brexit? Well, what I mean is if you look at the story of Cameron's coalition, right, where Cameron, Cameron didn't have a majority, formed a coalition with a liberal with, with, with a liberal party and had a risk of a conservative group breaking off of his majority coalition um, unless he withdrew the pre-legislative referendum to the voters. And he looked at the polls and the polls were 52% stay, 48% leave. He thought it was a safe enough bet threw it to the voters, and the outcome was exactly the opposite. 52% leave, 48% stay, right? So the problem with winner-take-all politics is it's not inconceivable that a legislative body could come up with some serious issue of contention and come up with a compromise that might not make everybody happy, but might leave everybody at least sufficiently satisfied that you wouldn't have such a radical Policy I mean, this change. argument and, and political scientists, of course, have been debating it ever since there's been political science of the multi-party system. There are many critics of multi-party systems. I mean, you just only have to look at the Italian system or maybe... No, but I was about to say that, Andrew. I was literally about to say that. No, right? Not every multi-party system works. In fact, I mean, do you have a model for a parliamentary yeah, system that works? What, which is... I do. So but let me just finish the, the point that I was going to make, which is that the threat to democracy is having too few parties, a majoritarian system, or too many parties, like Italy, for example, like Brazil, for example, the problems we see in Israel. And political scientists generally agree that the system that is best designed to solve that problem, to hit the Goldilocks principle, an optimal number of parties, typically four to eight, that's what most political scientists believe, is mixed member proportionality. 
So the idea is, um, as it would apply to us, you would cast two ballots for the House of Representatives, one by district, just like you do now, and one by party. And then the leaders of the parties in the House every other election, so every presidential election cycle, based on proportional representation, the number of seats that they have, would negotiate a majority coalition. And the first party that negotiates a majority coalition, and I have it on a fixed calendar with a backstop so we don't end up with endless problems of negotiation as we see in many parliamentary systems around the globe, we would be able to remain on a fixed presidential calendar. And is there a model? The I mean, this is all very theoretical. It's an adaptation of the system post-World War II in Germany, which was designed to solve the fractionalization of parties, obviously in the lead up to Nazi Germany. We're coming at it from the other side where the danger is a small group, right? The MAGA base of Trump taking over the GOP. Obviously the history in, in Germany was a very fractionalized group of parties in which Hitler was able to come in and form what becomes of the presidency in your parliamentary America? Does it become a Oh, what a happens is, is, is that, no, not at all. Oh, gosh, no. Actually, that's why I say the least radical means. We're going to have a two-term, we're going to have a maximum two-term and a four-year term presidency, just like we do now. Parties may choose to run primaries or not. Those that do will do it just like we do now. And because you'll be voting for a district representative in those elections, you're likely to have two dominant parties, just like we do now, except they won't be dominant in the sense of likely capturing a majority of seats. They will almost inevitably have to form coalitions with other parties. And when you think about that, an implication is that in order to successfully campaign, you will have to demonstrate a willingness and a commitment to work effectively with others as opposed to the kind of campaigns we have now, which are campaigns of denigration of the other side and increasingly working to rally your base, right? So the idea would be that we would have coalition governance rather than winner-take-all politics and studies do demonstrate voters are more satisfied, governments are more responsive in coalition-based systems than they are in majoritarian systems. But don't you have and in, so in this, we, you keep on saying studies prove, I'm always skeptical of that whenever anyone says studies prove. And I said demonstrate. Demonstrate, you, you can find it. You can <laughs> well, only in the sense that we don't finish we, on this. Yeah, America is always yeah. distinguished by its monarchic-like presidency, although that was the compromise Washington originally, people say, wanted to be king, or there were fears he would be king. Wouldn't this dilute down the, 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 the presidential um, institution so that you would have Danish-style leaders, fa faceless technocrats, able to cobble together coalitions? I mean, it's fine for Denmark or Germany, but not for a country like the United States. I, I, I don't think so. I, I, I really don't. I do think we would have greater checks and balances in a system in which the president's meaningfully accountable than in a system in which the president controls, in effect, obviously the party that dominates Congress or isn't in control because the other party dominates Congress. So we would have greater accountability 
And I think that's a good thing. I mean, I, I, I don't think an imperial presidency is necessarily universally good. I do agree that the United States as the leader of the free world, the strongest, uh, certainly the strongest economy, the strongest military in the world, has to be able to have a face on the international stage. And my proposal facilitates that. People will know who they're supporting because the ticket for, because the, the parties will have pre-designated um, leaders who would assume the role of president and vice president. As I say, you could likely anticipate, for example, that the Democratic Party would probably break into Democrats and progressives. The Republican would likely break into GOP and maybe America first. There might be a Green Party. There might be a Libertarian Party. Over time, this could evolve. And the larger parties would probably still use caucuses and primaries. Smaller parties might use more sort of narrowly tailored ways to try to determine who's going to be at the top of the ticket. But people would actually have much greater influence in the shape and direction of the government because they wouldn't be limited to a choice of two candidates that the majority of voters simply wish weren't running. They would be able to say, I would like but, it to but, be. Isn't that a feature of the, the Biden Trump? It, it's, it's, it's very unusual. One of the problems with the American system is that a relatively small amount of people always turn out to vote. Um, and the system that you're presenting sounds to me very complicated, highly technocratic. Isn't this going to turn people even further off politics? I think quite the contrary. I think it's actually very simple especially as compared with most of the proposals that are being advanced for reform, which include things like multi-member districts, ranked choice voting, mm. term limits. What I'm proposing is actually exceedingly simple. You cast two ballots for the House of Representatives every two years. One by district, you're likely to have a choice of two people running. It's likely to be, at least in the early to moderate term, a Democrat and a Republican. Likely that one of those parties will lead the coalition negotiations in the first round. But let's say that you're a Democrat, but you are also really a progressive and you want to signal that you would like the Democrats to form a progressive oriented coalition. It's very simple. You cast a ballot for the progressive. Let's say that you are- What about the Australian system, which requires by law people to vote? Are you sympathetic to that? I'm not. So it turns out, and I know that you're not a fan of studies, but there actually was a recent publication a couple of months ago that suggested that it doesn't actually produce greater moderation than we see in other systems. And of course, we have the, you'd have to amend to get my proposals, but you would also have a First Amendment problem there requiring people to vote. Not voting as a form of protest is something that presently would certainly be protected by the First Amendment. Um, I, I, I don't favor mandatory voting. I'll tell you what I do favor. I favor a system that motivates more people to become educated and to vote. And so if people feel good about the options before them, if they actually have choices that they like, if they actually can go in and say, I feel good about casting these ballots because I can really express what I want. I'm a progressive. I want to signal that. Um, I'm a, I'm isn't, a one, isn't one of the fears, though, and particularly in America, which is fragmented on identity politics, on race in particular, that the multi-party democracy that you're envisioning would simply fragment into one kind of racial category or another? I don't think so, because I don't think that 
race is a monolith. I think that there are, um, you know, if 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 you're specifically talking about black voters, but maybe maybe you're not. Maybe you're talking about Asian voters. I don't think that any racial category is a monolith, and I think one of the problems that black voters today face is that the vast majority, they're the most predictable, most reliable constituency for the Democratic Party, which means that there's no competition for their votes. And the system that I'm proposing would give genuine competition. There would be far greater influence among black voters if there was actually competition, not simply one option, attracting black votes, attack, uh, uh, attracting Asian votes, Asian American votes, or any other constituents. So what becomes, and, I take your point, Matt, what's, what becomes of the Supreme Court? The third, the supposed, you're rather skeptical of this division of power, but the supposed third branch of government. So what becomes of it is it remains the Supreme Court, but I think it becomes a much more highly functional Supreme Court because I think what will happen is, and this is really one of the main benefits of my proposal, Let's say that you vote for a progressive party, and let's say that the progressive party becomes part of the coalition that achieves a majority government. The leaders of the progressive party are going to say, we'll join your coalition, whether it's with the Republicans, or whether it's with the Democrats, on the condition that you give us something of value to our constituents. It could be policy concessions, cabinet appointments. It could even be commitments that the first available seat that becomes available in your presidency in the Supreme Court one of ours gets appointed to that position. I don't suggest that will happen every time, but it could happen some of the time. And if it does happen some of the time, I think it's going to soften the edges of an institution that today has the lowest approval of the Supreme Court, certainly in your lifetime and mine, and probably we could go substantially further back than that. And I think that's a good thing. I think making it so that the Supreme Court is less intensely perceived as less intensely the product of gamesmanship and partisan division is all to the good. I think it will improve the legitimacy of an institution whose legitimacy today is called into question in a virtually unprecedented way. We began uh, the uh, conversation, Max, with some references to the crisis of American democracy and some of the talks you've been giving. Uh, this question of whether democracy can survive 2024 and perhaps particular Trump's assault on democracy. Your, your proposal, and I mean this in, in, in a complimentary way, I think it is quite radical. Um, I agree. Uh, what has to happen? I mean, are you like Lenin? Do you want the system to break in order to have the revolution, the constitutional revolution you're talking about? Because it's, um, it's, it's no. a very sharp break with American history. It's theoretical and, 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 and interesting, provocative. What needs to happen to enable the kind of radical repair that you're talking about? It's not just going to happen because one party favors it, presumably. Doesn't there need to be a real crisis? So I'll say this. My goal is to educate the public so that they understand the root causes of the crisis that we are facing. I hope that the 2024 election doesn't result in the collapse of our democracy. I hope that we buy time and that people begin to seriously grapple with proposals for reform. The reason I wrote this book 
is because more people were recognizing the crisis and ideas were being thrown out that I knew either could not be enacted, would not solve the constitutional crisis we face, and most, most typically both. And I realized there was something that could be enacted, would solve the crisis, and I had to write a book to express it and explain it to the American public. So I plan to use <laughs> as, as, as long as I can, right? I, I, I plan to be on shows like yours, and I, I plan to. to you're educate certainly, the and you're certainly not alone in, in coming up with one kind of proposal or another. And, and, and finally, Max, what happens if American democracy breaks? What, what, what does that look like? You've traveled around the world, you looked at different systems, you went to Venezuela, which doesn't seem to have a, a functioning democracy. What's the fate of a post democratic America? What's the real world? Well, it, 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 it can be bleak. It, it, it can be an authoritarian leader enduring for as long as typically he, but not always, lives. It can completely subvert any possibility of a succession to a different leader. It can be the end of democracy and the beginning of authoritarian governance. And that is the thing that we have to really avoid and we have to grapple seriously with that but what happens we we, we, we're doing a yeah. show with one uh, one writer who argues that a, the democrat the republican party has always had a uh, a love affair with authoritarian politics what about what happens if 40 or 50 or even 60 percent of americans actually want authoritarianism they can shut the whole thing down this is what they want well i i, I don't believe that's true I, I, I don't believe that 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 40, 50 or 60 percent of Americans believe that the country will be better off, the world will be better off, or even they will be better off with authoritarianism. I think instead that a faction has taken control of the GOP. And I think the inability of the GOP to allow that group to splinter off because the only way to gain power is to keep your side intact and divide the other side has resulted in succumbing to the pressures of people with whom if you got them privately in a room, they would tell you, this is not good. We have to do this, this is not good. And I believe that if there were more options available, more anchor points for people to choose among, that we would actually see that the American public would rally around the notion that, no, we really want a democracy. We wanted to bet, we wanted to we want a better democracy. I can't imagine that very many people want their legacy to be to leave to their children and future generations an authoritarian government. I don't believe it. And if I did believe it, I wouldn't have written this book.